Well, good morning. I'll talk louder till we get the right deal going on the sound, but it takes a minute. I think I've got everything wired right. It's coming now. Okay, it's good to see all of you this morning. It's kind of a privilege. Well, it is a privilege, but I mean it's kind of fun um, to come up here and see you uh, there. Not because you're below me, but simply because from this angle I can see everybody's face and most of them are smiling, and that's a good thing. I'd like to start out this morning by reading you a bit that I found in an article. It was published in the Knoxville Sentinel Press, and uh, it is written by a lady named Ina Hughes. The year is 1857. James Buchanan succeeds Franklin Pierce as president in the only decade in American history that has four different leaders. In March of that year, some 436 black men, women, children, and infants housed it for months in racetrack horse stalls outside Savannah, Georgia, are sold off in the largest slave auction in history. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in its Dred Scott decision that blacks are not American citizens. Not only is the country on the brink of war, you remember 1857 is just four years away from the Civil War. It's kind of a contradiction in terms. Um, But the world comes into disarray when banks in New York City close down, and it is during this panic of 1857 that our story begins. Anna and Susan Warner live with their father near the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Mr. Warner, whose wife died when the girls were children, is one of New York City's most prominent lawyers. And his daughters, um, raised in relative luxury, live with him in the family home. Though more educated than most women of the era, they busy themselves with a life of little real worries content with leisure activities and community volunteer work, which includes teaching Sunday school at West Point. When their world falls apart, Warner loses everything in the panic of 1857. Spirit broken, he dies not long after the collapse of his holdings, leaving Anna and Susan with no income and no inheritance. The two young women decide to write books as a means of earning a living and being well-educated and ambitious They find a publisher and are relatively successful, earning enough to keep the family house and make a modest living. Anna Warner's novels, Say and Seal, becomes a global blockbuster. Though her name will become unknown to most in future generations, the words she writes are among the most familiar in the Western world. At the pivotal moment in Say and Seal, a kindly man named Mr. Linden sits at the bedside of a dying child named Johnny Fox. Linden wants to say something hopeful, something comforting to the boy as the child passes from this life to the next. And so he slowly recites a poem written, of course, by the book's author, Ann Warner. They are the last words that Johnny hears. But those words 
no longer live inside that story. Her readers hold on to them, remember them, pass them along to others. Many buy the book just to have copies of Lyndon's words to Johnny. When William Bradbury, one of the leading figures in American hymnody, reads them, he is moved to tears. Bradbury's repertoire includes such hymns as Sweet Hour of Prayer and He Leadeth Me, but never has he been so inspired as by Warner's poem. He composes a simple tune to fit the simple, deeply felt thoughts. Mr. Lyndon passes on to Johnny Fox in Say and Seal. Biographers suggest that what Warner thinks about as she writes those now famous words is how the very young men she teaches in Sunday school at West Point will soon be on the battlefield facing death, as was her character Johnny Fox. And sure enough, during the Civil War, the hymn that Bradbury and Warner wrote quickly spreads through the trenches on both sides of the line. Over time, Warner's poem has become the most popular hymn in Christian church history, used by missionaries on foreign soil and in every denomination here at home. Church historians suggest that it brings more people into Christian faith than any sermon or Bible verse. From one of the darkest eras in our history comes this American lullaby sung by God's children of all colors and all ages. Jesus loves me, this I know. We were children. Uh, we hear those words. Our hearts are taken back, I think, to a simpler time. We were children, or at least I was, and to me, uh, life was simple and uncomplicated. You wake up, you play. Mom calls the family to breakfast. You have breakfast, you play. You put on your play clothes first, you go out and play. Uh, you come back for lunch, you take a nap, you play. Dad comes home, you have supper, you play, you go to bed and start all over the next day. It was simple. You only heard two voices, mom and dad, mostly mom. Now there was an occasional interruption called disobedience, and that's when you heard dad's voice, more likely. At least for me, I can still hear the sound of dad's belt hitting the pant loops as he, <laughs> as he drew it out to deliver the stroke of education to the seat of understanding. <laughs> then things pretty much settled back into the usual routine. It felt safe and secure. At Sunday school, we sang the simple words, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. We had no problem with that. The Bible said it. Mom and Dad agreed. That was it. Now, that may not describe your early years. It may not uh, be true for everyone. For some, perhaps, you just substitute the word chores for play. And that comes closer to what you experienced. But for some, there was no simplicity, no security. You came into this world into a complicated home where tension was only exceeded by frustration, perhaps a single-parent home where there was hardly time even to give spankings. 
a battlefield where, better described, your early years where seeing your parents at peace was rare. Arguments, even violence, could be expected. What should have been playtime for you was more of an escape than an adventure. Whether your life was peaceful or tumultuous, it all changed anyway when we grew up. We're adults now. We become learned, sophisticated. And suddenly life is complicated. Instead of mom and dad's voices, we hear dozens. The news, preachers, one on Sunday, as many as a half a dozen during the week. Kids, dogs, advertising, bosses, co-workers, employees. And let's not forget Hollywood or Wall Street or Fifth Avenue. Maybe we still live, to, still live even to please dad or mom. And with all the voices, the voice of God isn't so clear anymore. Add to that denominations, cults, theologies, belief systems, worldviews, all with a seemingly unending series of challenges and, of course, ramifications to our own faith. And we ask, does it have to be that complicated? Sometimes I don't know what we'd say we would give to have some silence, some solitude. We don't even know how to do it. Uh, we take guys at men's retreat and we say, okay, we want you to spend an hour in silence. And some guys come back and say, that was great. But usually there are guys who've done it before. The other guys say, that was the hardest hour I ever spent. You don't get to listen to sound. You don't get to create sound. You don't get to be busy. You just have to be still and hopefully know that God is God. Well, Paul suggested that it doesn't have to be that complicated, or it shouldn't. Um, his concern, and this is not our main passage, but his concern for the Corinthian church comes to mind. He said, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that word in your Bible may say, that word of devotion to may actually be in italics because there isn't a word there. Um, the general idea is with respect to Christ, simplicity and purity. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Our topic today is the security of the believer, security of salvation. It's the, kind of the other side of the, the assurance coin. Paul's, I mean, Todd is preaching a series on our assurance of salvation, talking about, um, talking about it from, John, um, from 1 John. But the other side of that is what is called the security of the believer from God's point of view, from a biblical point of view. Um, is salvation secure? Some call it once saved, always saved. We've heard that one a long time, and that's simple. But the question is, is it true? If it is true, then the challenge is that 
we just have the, the, temp, the, the difficulty of sometimes really not saying, yeah, but, and then the voices that we've heard come in and muddle the picture. David R. Anderson, in his little booklet entitled, We Believe in Eternal Security, quoted an ancient proverb. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. This is kind of a mental twister. He, it's hard for me to read. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is simple. Teach him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. Wake him up. He who knows and knows that he knows is wise. Follow him. It's kind of funny because we live in a time called postmodern. And I'm not going to talk about that, but that's one of the challenges with the whole idea. One of the challenges of the postmodern era is that we can know anything. They will say something like, Nothing is true. There's no such thing as truth. Now, to me, it seems kind of simple and obvious to ask the question, was that true? (laughs) Am I supposed to take that as true and then everything else? No. But our question is, is it possible? Let's start with that. Is it possible that salvation can be secure? And part of it has to do with what God has done. In fact, is what we will discover is that it all has to do with what God has done. Um, I love the singing of these songs this morning. I I always love the songs that Mark chooses. Um, If you hadn't noticed it, he gives a lot of attention to having some content to the songs. And I I woke up in the middle of the night saying, you know, why don't we just take a couple of songs and then just look up all the verses of the Bible that those are taken from and we'd have a great message because it it just all combines to excite and thrill your heart as you hear God's truth sung. I wish I was as sophisticated as the songwriters and could say things as eloquently as they do, but... um, I will do what I can simply from the standpoint that um, we're going to talk about what the Word has to say about this subject of eternal security. So if you'd open your Bibles, first of all, well, yeah, open your Bibles um, to the book of Romans. And the question centers around, as as it should, perhaps two issues. One is... Um, what is the problem? And uh, the, the big problem in Scripture is man's sin. So we have to start with that. And I'd just like to look at Romans chapter 1. Verse 20 and 21. And this is I know I'm taking this out of context, but trust me, he's talking about the gospel. He's telling, he's starting to talk about in verse, in, in this passage, what we'll go through all the way through chapter 3 about the sinfulness of man and the sin of man and the fall of man and the depravity of man. Um, 
great old preacher J. Vernon McGee used to call this Cinerama. And it starts right here. Now, for some of us who were alive when Cinerama was something that you look for a Cecil B. DeMille film on, uh, that's more of a meaningful thing. But uh, it's all about sin in the beginning of uh, verse 20, or let's say 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For men, though they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Their foolish heart was darkened. Later on, the writers of Scripture will say that God has, in fact, in one of the songs, God reached down into darkness and pulled us out into his great light. We will be called as a starting place in several passages of Scripture those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. We will be called people who are by nature children of wrath. All of that is a way of saying we don't have a chance of saving ourselves. The connection between man and God was broken when Adam sinned in the garden and man began to die physically. That happened a little more slowly, but he was immediately cut from the source of life. And he was dead spiritually. And that's what's being described here. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They weren't thankful. They went their own way. And their foolish heart was darkened. The problem is man's sin. Romans 3.23 more or less concludes with the statement, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So from God's point of view, there's no distinction. Everybody, everybody's a candidate for what God's about to do. But most of us agree with that. We don't have a problem with, I mean, never like to hear it, but we don't have a problem if we're Bible students and have been around here long enough to realize that that's man's problem, is sin. It reminds me of a guy, a few words that uh, went to church one day by himself because his wife wasn't feeling well. She said, well, how was the pastor? And he said, oh, he's okay. He said, well, what did he preach on? He said, sin. And she said, well, what did he say about it? He said, he's against it. <laughs> this is all about getting back to simple and uncomplicated, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, but before we dive into this solution that God gave, and, and the solution is called salvation, And in its broadest sense, 
It includes everything from taking man when he was dead in his trespasses and sin, lost in the dark. He was, um, by, by his very nature, a child of wrath. Taking that person who had no interest in God, saving him, regenerating him, keeping him, and delivering him before the throne of God as perfectly acceptable, perfectly made in the image of Christ. The idea of of salvation in its broadest sense, and there are times when the scripture talks about different times of salvation where it means something else. And there are other words that, that are synonyms, but the whole doctrine, it's called soteriology, if you want the big theology word. And it, 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 um, in this one theology book that I have, it is a volume just on that subject because there is so much about this particular teaching that is relevant to what the Bible says. And it is, it's kind of the core doctrine of Scripture. Lewis Berry Chafer, in that particular volume, said this, In its broadest significance, the doctrine of salvation includes every divine undertaking for the believer from his deliverance out of the lost estate to his final presentation in glory, conformed to the image of God. We sang about that this morning. I don't know where you are as far as how you felt about that. Sometimes... Hymns make us liars. We sing something because it's being sung and we don't really believe it. Or we have some doubts. But it was there this morning and it's scriptural. So let's talk about the possibility and we'll, we'll move along now. Turn to Hebrews 7. It's toward the back of the Bible. Going backwards, it's Revelation. Jude, first, second, and third John, first, second, Peter, James, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. And in this chapter, um, we've gotten to the point where we're talking about the priesthood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And Hebrews is all about Jesus being the ultimate of everything that God did and how the Old Testament pictured that and how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was part of that sacrificial system. And so in here, he's talking about the sacrifices and how the old sacrifices were unable to do what God did through Jesus. All right. So Hebrews chapter 7. There's some words that we're going to keep track of, but let's just read um, in verse 7. Let's see. I'm sorry. Verse 27. And I can I can never help myself. I have to go back uh, to one verse earlier just so this all fits. Verse 26, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, and here's the kicker, because he, this he did once for all when he offered up himself. 
The concept we're interested in here is once for all. He's contrasting the sacrifices that were done continually by the priest year after year, week after week, month after month, but saying that the sacrifice that Jesus made was a one-time sacrifice for all. But he advances a point, let's go forward, because he uses several chapters. But look at chapter 9, verse 12. And you see that's a continuation of 11, so I'll read it. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. If you know the story, you know that the priests in the Old Testament went into the tabernacle with the sacrifice. They went into the holy place. They made, And on the Day of Atonement, they went into the Holy of Holies with the blood. And that was done to... Um, to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. But when Jesus entered, he did not enter through that tabernacle. He entered through a greater, more perfect one, not of this creation. And he didn't enter through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place, there it is again, once for all, for the cleansing of, I'm sorry, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay, so there's a hint there that we're going to talk about. Not only was it for everyone, but it is also for everyone who would ever live. The word eternal catches our eye. Okay, jump to Hebrews 10 and look at verse 10. And, of course, it starts with verse 8. I'm sorry. Yeah, eight and nine. After, after saying above sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them which were offered according to the law, he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. This is Jesus speaking. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But he's up to Annie again. Did you notice the smallest word in that verse? The verse we. Now the once for all not only includes the Old Testament believers, but it also includes the readers. It includes us. Those of us who have come to Christ by faith in him. Christ's death is God's one and only provision for man's sin and is sufficient payment for all his sins. There is no sin that you could have committed that the sacrifice of Christ did not atone for or a sin that you will commit. C.S. Lewis compared God to an author. It was a pretty clever way of saying that God operates on a different plane than we do. He said, before an author ever writes a book, or he didn't say this, I just kind of added this on. Before an author ever writes a book, he compiles a list of characters to be in the book. They are given gender, age, personality, behavior, strengths, weaknesses, experiences. Everything to populate the story with people to live it out. Something akin to this, God has always known you even before you were born. 
In fact, is the scripture said he's known you since before he created anything. In eternity past, he has known you. And most importantly, he knew the sin that you committed yesterday. No matter how long you've been a believer, there are sins that still happen in your life. And I hope it's just me. Um, okay, I have some company. Um, but he knew this. When Jesus went to the cross, every sin you ever committed up to the time you became a believer and on until you breathed your last breath was in view at the cross. All were in play when Jesus stood in your place and took God's judgment for you. That's how thorough he is. So Romans 8 can say safely, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is another word, and I'm just going to read these passages for you, but this other word talks for all time. Hebrews 10:12, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10:14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So it's not only huge in its breadth, but it's also huge in, in its depth. The scripture says in John 3.18, He who believes in him is not judged. The one who has not believed has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. How did all this get pulled off? I want to tell you that um, in the next couple of minutes, we're just going to talk about some things that each person of the Trinity contributed to this amazing um, accomplishment. And in doing so, we're only going to scratch the surface. There are some 50 things that happened to you that you became a party to and a beneficiary of when you accepted Christ as your Savior. But let's look at this. What was involved? The power of God. John 10:29 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The power of God. Daniel 4, 34 and 35 make an interesting observation. We aren't going to use many Old Testament passages, but I'm trying to include a number of authors just so you know it's not just one guy we're focusing in on. In this passage it says, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? God is all-powerful and sovereign. 
Nobody can ask him about how he uses the power he has, but it's certainly sufficient. You know, when I was thinking about this, I realized that we, there's a lot of kinds of power. I'm not going to go through all of that, but we do recognize the fact that there's motive power, you know, stuff that moves things, big machines. We like speed. It takes power to make that happen. We like heavy stuff lifting. It takes power to make that happen. We are impressed um, with that kind of power. We're also used to the idea of political power. The, the ability to persuade, the ability to get elected, the ability to use that power then for whatever use you deem correct. But there's all of this stuff that goes on with that. But there's one power that we have absolutely no connection with, and that is spiritual power. There's a whole world out there that we don't see, and God's the only one who has the power to do things in that realm. And so when we look at this a little bit further, we'll see that, you know, we're talking about a birth. We're talking that we are reborn of the Holy Spirit, and it's a spiritual birth. We are given uh, his spirit to indwell us. In Jude, he said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy. That's part of what God does. Secondly, the love of God. Um, there are a lot of passages that could be, written, that could be quoted about this, but uh, Hebrews 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us and Jesus died for us while we were still in a sinning state. There was no waiting for us to improve a little bit, a good day, you know, whatever. Not at all. His bad day was there. He stepped into our story and uh, he carried out the finish that we set up for ourselves. He took that on himself so that we could be part of his story. The scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. The love of God. All right. God the Son, his sacrifice, and we've, uh, we've already talked about that in Hebrews chapter 10, 11, or uh, 7 through 10. But also his prayers. 1 John 2 says, My little children, I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but those of the whole world. You may not recognize that word propitiation. One of the songs had it in it, but it said it this way. He is the satisfaction. He's the one whose sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's righteous justice and free God to then relate to us through grace and love. He is also our intercessor. In John 17, as he's praying to the Father, he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. 
Keep them in your name. Keep them. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. I would just ask you this question. Can you imagine God not answering Jesus' prayer in the affirmative? I mean, do you think he's effective? And he's our advocate. He's our intercessor. All right, God the Holy Spirit. We're getting close to the end. In Romans 8, 10, and 11, it says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of God indwells us. The indwelling of the Spirit of God is a new feature after the cross. It wasn't the case in the Old Testament. The Spirit could come and go. He would come alongside. He would come on to somebody and enable them. He would move people. You remember when he moved God's people to give their talents and their money to the building of the tabernacle? Every, everyone whose Spirit, God's Spirit, moved came back. And they brought their gifts, and they brought their talents, and they brought their abilities. But in the New Testament, the Spirit of God, Jesus talked about it in the upper room. He said, he's been with you, but he will be in you. And that's something we have. Um, The sealing of the Spirit, very important. In Ephesians 1, it says this in verse 13 and 14. In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I'm grateful that uh, you guys, you uh, gals who were able to be in Bonnie's class when she taught through Ephesians got a chance to sit in on just Ephesians 1. You could preach a year on that. (laughs) All the things that we have. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is the work of God. It signifies the safety and security of the one sealed. And it's another evidence that the believer, once saved, is always saved saved. And finally, I'd like to talk about one that you don't hear much. It's called regeneration. But it's a, it's a word that's used a couple of times in the Bible. Titus uses it. But it's, um, it's a synonym for the new birth that we have. You remember in, first, in, in John where it says, all those who did receive them, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Um, Then it says, who are born, not of the will of man, not of the flesh, but of the will of God. That's what he's talking about. When he told Nicodemus, you must be born again, you must be born from from above, because that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit, of the spirit, is spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates. In 1 Peter, he says, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, 
That is through the living and enduring word of God. James said, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You see, folks, that no matter which thing you turn to, the activity of the grace of God and the, the three persons of the Trinity are continually involved, not only from, the, from bringing you up from the depths, but keeping you as part of God's family to the day when they can present you holy and blameless in his presence. It's a phenomenal thing. It's one last thing that I really love that the, that the Spirit does. And uh, now I've lost my place. But it's in uh, Romans chapter 8. Down in verse, starting with verse 26, he talks about the way the Spirit helps our weaknesses, that he intercedes for us as well. He searches the hearts. Um, um, and in this, he, uh, he talks about the fact that the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit that we are indeed children of God. We are called by God to be adopted into his family. Uh, Whatever God does sticks. It stays. I'd like to um, encourage you from the standpoint of just just the concept of uh, what is it um, that we do in response to this. Well, in response to this, we do what we were supposed to do when we heard the gospel. We are to believe it. We are to count on it. We are to hold on to it. We are to continue in the faith. In the book of Galatians, Paul warns the Galatians. He said, don't try anything new. He said, you begin by grace through faith, and you should continue that way. What you'll hear around here is that's how you walk. You walk by faith. You walk by the Spirit. And that walk simply stands for day-to-day life. I understand that life is not a mountaintop experience every day. In fact, is that's sort of a farce to say that. Um, life is at best half good experiences. And the other half is just tedious. Sometimes tedious, sometimes outright dangerous. And we get frightened, we get influenced, we question. It's all a threat to our faith. The thing that is going to keep us in him, the activity that we can be involved in that is, that is of him, is to believe. And that belief has to be, have as its object the word of God. So there's no substitute. I remember hearing Bob talk about this. There's no substitute for spending time in God's Word. And that doesn't mean reading it and forgetting. It means slowing down and thinking. 
making notes, looking up definitions. Todd does it. He doesn't do it because he has to. He's doing it long before he became a pastor. It's because that's where the meat is. Um, you want a real meal, you got to go in the kitchen and do some preparation. you got to put some ingredients together. And uh, it takes some time. you got to let it cook. you got to spend some time with him. But I am fascinated with this idea of adoption, and I'd like to leave you with this thought. Actually, I have time to give you two. I, pro- I apologize for that, but this is one I wanted to give you. Uh, I just pulled this this morning out of, our, out of my file when I came in, and it's a Melanie Park doctrinal statement. Um, I, I recommend it to you. <laughs> but with regard to uh, salvation, he said, We believe that the new birth of the believer comes through faith alone and Christ alone. Repentance is a vital part of believing and is no way in itself a separate and independent condition of salvation, nor are any other acts. I'll skip on. We believe that, well, let's go on, I guess, such as confession, baptism, prayer, faithful service, to be added as a condition of salvation. The doctrine of salvation is simple and clear. And then it says, we believe that all true believers, elect of God, once saved, are kept secure in Christ forever. So all I've done this morning is kind of expand on that, taking some of the verses that are there, um, using some resources that help me find more passages. And the more I find, the more I'm excited about the fact that this is something that is so clear, so evident in Scripture that you should come across it regularly. You should have it on your mind. Max Lucado, in a, in a little story in his book called In the Grip of Grace, writes this story. A man adopted a troubled teenage girl. Everyone in town knew the girl's reputation. She lied. She cheated. She refused to obey any authority. She often turned destructive. Why would anyone want to adopt her? Still, the man took her into his house, gave her a special room of her own, and treated her like his daughter. She treated him just like everyone expected. One day, she ran from school, ran home from school, raced into the house, and started looking everywhere for money. Finding none, she went on a rampage, disrupting and destroying everything in sight. When the man got home from work, a horrendous sight greeted him. The entire house was turned topsy-turvy. Many precious possessions laid shattered on the floor. The neighbors watched to see the girl's expected expulsion. They came to him with advice. Don't finalize the adoption papers. Send her back. The man steadfastly refused all such advice. Send her back, the neighbors and friends repeated. After all, she's really not your daughter. I know, the man admitted, but I told her she was. Let's pray. Father, we we all come from different situations. We all have different experiences going on right now in our lives. 
Um, sometimes it's hard for us to hear your voice. Sometimes it's hard for us to realize in the day-to-day living of life that uh, our salvation can be sure. We hear voices of people who say, if you do such and such or so and so, I don't know. Maybe you're not a Christian. We hear people that we know who believe you can lose your salvation. I have a friend who says, I know I can't, God's not going to take it away, but I can give it back. We know, Father, there's no scripture that tells us that. I just pray, Father, that you would take these things that we've talked about this morning, use them to be what they're intended to be, and that is an encouragement to our life for you. I remember the statement about Abraham, which said that he didn't grow weak in faith, but he he remained firmly convinced that you were able to do what you had promised. Even when he went to sacrifice Isaac, Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed you could raise people from the dead and was prepared to take Isaac's life if you didn't provide something else for a sacrifice. We thank you for Mary, who was another who was recognized as a girl who believed that God would do what he said he would do and went through um, all the shame and all the difficulty of bearing the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, not receiving their eternal reward, but faithful. I pray, Father, that you will help us to be the same, follow their example, and let that be a legacy to the next generation. We ask it in Jesus' name.